Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Drayhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. Thank you for joining us for episode 11 of our Prep School Bracket. This week we'll be discussing 2003's Mona Lisa Smile, as well as 1991's Toy Soldiers. And these movies are doing incredibly different things, so it's kind of hard to judge them against each other because they have clearly different goals. That's going to be the case with Toy Soldiers, no matter what you put it up against. Even some of the weirder stuff in the bracket, like Sky High. Yeah. Toy Soldiers and Sky High. That makes sense as a mashup. I don't think it really goes with anything else in the bracket. At least nothing left. Yeah. Toy Soldiers versus St. Trinians, maybe? Mm, I could see it. That would work, I think. They are working in similar things, but I think, as we talked about last time, St. Trinians is kind of doing a lot, so isn't quite work. Yeah. I think there's definitely a more Toy soldiers e version of Centurions that could happen. Like, I would definitely enjoy seeing, like... If it leaned more into the heist narrative than it does. Yeah, or I guess if it was kind of Home Alone, but instead of just one kid in a big house, it's a lot of kids in a big school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if we removed some of the 80s ultraviolence from this. Mm-hmm. Where do we want to start with this one? Probably Mona Lisa Smile. It's seated higher. Yeah. And also, I think I have more to say about Mona Lisa Smile. Toy Soldiers is fun, but on a rewatch, I didn't notice a lot of big things that I didn't think of before. Does that make sense? Yeah. I definitely think there's a lot more depth in Mona Lisa Smile than there is in Toy Soldiers. I don't even think one is better than the other because of it. Like we said before, Toy Soldiers doing very different things, so it doesn't really need to have depth. It could use some more depth, but it is not failing to have depth. It just didn't try in the first place. (laughs) Exactly. However, I think we are in the minority about the depth of Mona Lisa's smile, apparently. Last time we talked about it, we wondered why it didn't do better, why it wasn't more well-known or well-loved, and so I looked into that a bit. And so this is, I guess I'm calling uh, Da Vinci's Tomatoes. I don't have any, like, funny reviews or anything, sadly. I couldn't find anything good. But the general consensus was was either it was trite and formulaic and it wasn't doing anything new, and it was just Rule 63 Dead Poet Society. That latter one is definitely kind of unfair. I get that Dead Poet Society was more fresh at the time. It, it was only about 10 years old, give or take, at that point. So I get how people would be kind of in that space of thinking that this is just Dead Poet Society for girls. But, I mean... Inspirational teacher narratives are a dime a dozen. Like, it's not like the post said he has the copyright on that. Yeah, you know? like there have been plenty of inspirational teacher stories before it. There will be plenty after. I do think it takes some lessons from how did poet society is structured. But, oh yeah, but I mean, <laughs> like if you're going to emulate something, emulate something that's good. Right. I mean, I'm not opposed to that. I'm on record of thinking we need more movies that are, that are just a beloved classic with a lot of men, but it's mostly women. That's fine. <laughs> that's not a complaint to me. Yeah. People did feel that it was on the shallow side, which I think is unfair. I think that some of the characters do wind up being a little underdeveloped because we have so many of them. Yes. But I think that it doesn't feel too shallow. It doesn't. They don't feel flat. They just feel like we could have spent more time with them. I also know from my digging into things that uh, because Wellesley College is an actual real place that exists and the film is kind of critical of it, that some people who are associated with Wellesley College were not fond of the film's portrayal. And I'm certain that that probably had something to do with some of the backlash as well. Oh, sure. And I mean, some of the stuff I was reading suggested it was kind of exaggerating the culture at the time, which, fair enough. But Uh, it's a movie. Right, yeah. And we saw that with Room of the Titans, Mm -hmm. which, while I agree that does ding it for historical accuracy, I hadn't heard of Wellesley College until I saw this movie. So Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it was based on real-ish history. 
I think there's a big difference with Remembrance Titans that is attempting to tell a story based on true events and Mona Lisa Smile, which as far as I'm aware, all of the characters are fictional and it's just mostly inspired by events going on at the school at the time. Right. And I mean, I think that it does play into a larger issue of talking about oppression and cultural boundaries, but displaced by enough time that you're not really commenting on the way things are now-ish. I mean, I'm not saying that some of these issues aren't still relevant. We, we still, do still deal with sexism and all that jazz in the modern day. But much like narratives about how bad racism was back in the old days, and we're much better now, there, I can see how it plays into an element of feeling good about how much progress has been made that can ignore how much progress hasn't been made. But it's not the movie's fault that, that we love a, a period piece that makes us feel good about progress happening. Yeah, so, and I that. don't even necessarily think it's bad for us to feel that way. We can feel good about progress that we've made, but that doesn't mean that we get to stop attempting to make progress. Right. And I think that while the specific progress that the movie's talking about is not as relevant to the modern day, the idea of a teacher receiving pushback for being too radical or for trying to take a conservative culture in a more liberal direction is an ongoing issue. BYU just declared that you're not allowed to be gay there, uh, so... Well, it was more like redeclaring. <laughs> yeah, they dug that back in. So there are still schools that are, have deeply non-progressive messaging. Julia Roberts needs to go gay it up at BYU, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Hurricane Roberts. Okay, so we kind of talked about like the background, why people are not as warm on this film as we have been. Mm-hmm. Why don't we talk about why we enjoy the film so much? Uh, really strong characters, really good acting, writing's pretty good. I like these people. I want to see them do well. And I think the emotional arc hits me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does what an Oscar period piece is supposed to do. Yeah. I agree with all that. And I think one of the big reasons I latched on to this is because it does a really good job of being an introduction into philosophical aesthetics and what is art, who gets to decide what art is, and all those sorts of things without it feeling like a 100 level lecture. Right. And people comment on it asking the questions without giving answers, which I feel like means they kind of miss miss the point of the film that uh, asking questions is important and that just taking a single answer as gospel is not a healthy way to appreciate art. Art is supposed to make you feel things, but it's not necessarily going to make everyone feel the exact same things. Right. And figuring out why you feel those things and... If the film is doing a good job making you feel the things it wants you to feel, if it's societally good to feel the things the film is going for, etc., are all good questions to ask. Mm-hmm. And I think that second class where Catherine is trying to get them to figure out a definition of art that is going to not be ridiculously broad, but also not be ridiculously narrow, and how difficult that is without relying on deferring to authority... Mm -hmm. on the matter and i think that uh, lesson right there kind of encapsulates everything else that's going on with the film there's definitely a question authority streak throughout this movie but it's doing it in a very different way than what you would expect from someone just saying question authority and a running theme i liked is that Catherine's stance is that modern art today that is looked down on will one day be respected and taught in art classes which it is and i think that invites us to ask what is modern art now that is not respected that will be in the future Mm -hmm. which i think is always a good question for any genre 
Yeah, there, there are so many things that, like, we're seeing superhero films become more and more appreciated by the film-going establishment as, as worthy art as opposed to just pop culture nonsense. I mean, we've seen the huge backlash against Twilight, and we've seen how much of an influence that hat has had on literature, especially YA literature, and even the films, how much influence that they've had. Mm-hmm. And we're also seeing different mediums be more and more accepted. I mean, look at uh, how much of a cultural shift there's already been because of uh, Into the Spider-Verse. For animated film, and to a certain extent superhero film, but I think the radically different use of animation that that film has is, pro- is going to make a lot of ripples, and I'm really glad that people saw that and were like, okay, we're going to watch this and see what comes of it. Yeah, people are finally moving on from emulating Disney in the animation world between Into the Spider-Verse and Klaus. And I think we're about to enter a period where we're going to see a lot more experimentation. And it's not like there hasn't been experimentation before those two films. I mean, if you take a look at like Leica, mm-hmm. they've been doing their own thing for quite a while. And they've been doing it incredibly well. Right. This has turned into talking about uh, art that we like. But I mean, that's the I podcast, mean, I guess. A, that's the podcast. And B, I think it's important to talk about real world ex- examples that we can use to bounce off of the film and the message that it's teaching Mm -hmm. and like it's important and i think bringing those real world examples reinforces how well the film does in explaining that issue and yeah we also have an element that the film gets into about who gets to decide what art is and there's a you know that good conversation that happens art isn't art until someone says it is it's art (laughs) the right people who are they which is another thing that we're getting into and and how the propagation of social media has changed the landscape of who does and does not get to have a say and have their voice heard about that, which I think is important. And I'm glad that's a thing, even though there's still systemic problems. Like you don't get to like vote on Twitter for who should win Academy Awards, but there are still people finding voices in communities within social media and other forms of new communication. Oh yeah. yeah. Like 20 years ago, we wouldn't be having this podcast. One of us would be working at Blockbuster and pontificating it patrons who probably didn't want to hear it and you know we ourselves have issues with the oscars that's one of the reasons that we decided to do the pauses <laughs> just a month ago by the same token i looked to see like what this was up against and why i didn't win more awards and i'm just mad that uh, keisha castle hughes didn't win best actress for whale rider mm-hmm. that's that's my summary also there it's up against lord of the rings return of the king which is why i didn't win anything uh... that won every award all of them either was wasn't nominated for yeah that was that was a ridiculous Oscar sweep. Yeah. Uh, but we're not here to talk about Lord of the Rings. Yes. Uh, we're here to talk about Paul, Catherine's boyfriend. I feel like he was kind of absent from the film, and I can't tell if it's intentional. I honestly really like Paul as a character. Oh, yeah. He's fine. I really like first gets to like the, the Wellesley area. He has this like huge, ridiculous fedora. It's so distinct compared to all of the smaller hats that we've seen from everyone in the like New England area. And I like how much of a fish out of water he seems, especially when you've put him next to Catherine, who has begun assimilating. Mm-hmm. But I will say that I kind of forgot he was a thing until he showed up in the plot. We had a phone call with him pretty early in the film, and then nothing. And I can't tell if there was just like a scene or two that got left on the cutting room floor as happens to our film or yeah. if this was intentional to to put us in the headspace that Catherine is in where her life has become so big and so much about other things that she kind of forgotten him mm-hmm. like i feel bad for paul he's 
trying his best. He really cares about Catherine, but Catherine is moving on to other things. And it's not anyone's fault that the relationship is failing, but it is. And I mean, long distance is hard. Yeah. I get it. Also, Paul is such a better love interest than Bill is. Yeah. I will say he has a bit where she's kind of starting to decouple from him. And he says like, I just came 3,000 miles to see you. And I'm sleeping down here by myself. Which I give us something to be upset about, but love and romance should not be transactional. Like, that makes me think that maybe he would have been not a great choice for her down the line anyway. It was not as on the surface as Bill. Bill who sleeps with his students. Yeah. And, like, that's the whole problem with surprise big gestures like that. If they had been talking, they might have been able to realize, oh, hey, this isn't working and save both of them some trouble and heartache. Yeah. I think this boils down to communication issues Mm -hmm. more than anything else, but a lot of times problem in relationships boil down to communication issues. Yeah. Speaking of communication issues, there is an amazing scene at the end where Elizabeth Warren is um, talking to her mom. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) The character goes by Betty, but her name is Elizabeth Warren, and that's way funnier now than it was in 2003, (laughs) where Betty is talking to her mom, and they're having basically... Two entirely different conversations because Betty is talking about the painting Mona Lisa and what smiling means and, and all that jazz, whereas her mom is talking about like uh, hiding your divorce is happening. She's smiling. Is she happy? The important thing is not to tell anyone. She looks happy. So what does it matter? Like the writing there is really killer. Mm-hmm. It's all tying into the the title of the movie and the many ways that that the title works for the film, and I really appreciate the depth of that scene. Mm-hmm. Another thing with Betty's mom that I really like this really subtle thing. She talks about the flower arrangements and freesia instead of daisies. Wise choice, no baby's breath. In flower symbolism, both daisies and baby breath represent like innocence and purity, but baby breath represents everlasting love and daisies do not. <laughs> so good job foreshadowing movie. Jokes that only botanists will get. I love when films do that really subtle foreshadowing very often with like flower language or uh, sometimes with color theory, just something that only people who are really, really nerdy about a very niche subject are going to get. Mm-hmm. But like, Easter eggs are great like that. Yeah. It, and it's a really like fun way to communicate with your audience, and it's still a good way to mm-hmm. put it into the scene. Yeah. Um, like Even if only the people who are making the movie understand the reference, it's still fun for them, and I appreciate that. Yeah, because not all art has to be for everybody. Mm-hmm. I do want to come back to Bill a little bit, because... Mm, yeah. I am just so frustrated by the detour that Catherine takes with him. We have all of this messaging that this is a very bad idea and she does it anyway. And I'm not saying it's a bad movie because of it. I'm just frustrated by it. But as you kind of get it, the movie is pulling between this 50s fantasy of a happy married couple and the reality of how messy relationships are Mm -hmm. and... Catherine only starts dating Bill when she's kind of at this very low point mm-hmm. and she is falling into this fantasy as a way to cope with that. Yes. Which I get. Like, that's yeah. an understandable thing. It's very human. I think the movie yeah. could have maybe emphasized the badness more, but... I don't have any problems with it in the film. I just have a problem with it on a personal level. It's like watching a friend date someone you know is terrible for them, but they don't realize it yet. I mean, that is basically what it's like. <laughs> Except that sadly, we're not friends with uh, Julia Roberts. 
Also, there's this line as it's revealed that Bill was not overseas during World War II and was just translating intercepted communication in New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, Catherine calls him on it and he says, Catherine, look, I'm sorry, okay? I'm, I made a mistake. No, Bill, it was not a mistake. It was a decade of mistakes, <laughs> not correcting anyone. <laughs> Like, a mistake could be conjugating a word wrong, not conjugating your own history wrong. Yeah. And, like, there's often this sense with, like, bad actors who are like, it was this one mistake. It's very often not one mistake. It is a mistake that you kept failing to correct. Mm -hmm. And I understand that when you lie and keep lying, you kind of have to, like, faulty towers your way down from there. Mm -hmm. But I think that was a good choice for this character. It makes him less an outright villain, more a kind of just sleazebag mm -hmm. that gives him more nuance than if he was just a shitty guy yeah exactly hey so i have a question maybe we don't have a good answer for this but at the end we have that really great scene where all the students have painted some flowers for Catherine as like a going away thing mm -hmm. really nice very sweet one of them is just a vase full of eyes who painted that one who do we think painted that one it's obviously not betty no i don't think Joni would have done that no that doesn't seem like her style and i feel like connie would think of it, but wouldn't ha have the, like... Confidence to do it? Yeah. Of the characters we get a good sense for in the film, I think Giselle's the most likely culprit. Mm, sure. But Giselle seems like she'd go a bouquet of genitalia route to the <laughs> eyes. Yeah. So I'm gonna peg it on Kristen Ritter's character. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. I'm glad <laughs> in the same place with that. Um, she has this eerie presence the whole time it doesn't speak it's like that thing where like the characters discover that somebody's been time traveling because they see them in the back of a picture or whatever it's like that with Kristen Ritter yeah why is she there but what does she want I love the introduction of those paint by number sets and the way it pays off later I think that's a really great encapsulation of some of the major themes of the films like this art is so commodified that you can DIY your own reproduction of this famous painting. Mm -hmm. But is that art? Is it any less art than if you were to paint it yourself or whether you were to get a, like, a print of it made? And I love that the students come to their own terms with it and they each give Catherine a painting of their own design as a going away gift as this physical embodiment of everything that you taught me this semester. I think that is a mirror of and much better version of that thing from Dead Poets Society where Keating tells him, I want you to rip out that page. Go on. Rip out the entire page. In the same way, they're defining the instruction given to them, but instead of destroying bad art, they're instead making good art while also defacing what was intended which i think is a better way to do things mm -hmm. yeah like in general it's better to build up the things you want to see rather than tear down the things you don't not always the case but right you do need the the destroyer in some cases but that's how we're gonna win not fighting what we hate saving what we love uh roast ego done dirty done dirty one last thing I want to talk about before we sh shift gears is I don't think 
we talked enough about uh, the firing of Amanda uh, last time we talked about Mona Lisa's smile. I think that's incredibly significant because it sets up the antagonism between Betty and Catherine. And I really love the way that the film builds that drama. We see Betty typing up her op-ed and we hear her voiceover like reading off relevant pieces of it. And we see Amanda in the administrator's office. We see her get fired. And immediately after that firing, it cuts to a sign uh, that says how to cross your legs. And does such a good job of spelling it out exactly the type of sex negative culture that we're dealing with and exactly what Amanda was fighting against and how omnipresent that thinking is at this all-girls school where they, they definitely feel they have to protect these women. It makes the cultural shift that Catherine and also Amanda were, was going for feel so much bigger. Mm-hmm. It's like how you kind of have to show how scary the bad guys are at the start of any given war movie. you got to show how scary the culture is here. Yeah, We get some bits and pieces of that earlier when Catherine is first being shown her room on campus. Just a few rules. No holes in the walls. No pets. No loud noises. No radio or hi-fi after eight on weekdays, ten on weekends. Uh, no hot plates and no male visitors. Like After that conversation, you can see Catherine feeling a little frustrated and upset, and she asked her about it. Anything wrong? I don't think I can go a year without a hot plate. And that's what leads her to find housing off of campus. And I just love the way that the hot plate is used as a euphemism there. Mm-hmm. And that puts in the house with Nancy and Amanda, which is a really good microcosm of what happens to people who don't fit into or who don't succeed at the lifestyle that Wellesley wants you to live in, mm-hmm. which I think is a really important place to be. Mm-hmm. We need the prior generation of... Not, not Wellesley dropouts, per se, but like Wellesley... Black sheep. Yeah, Wellesley black sheep, yeah. The house of unmarried women. I mean, Amanda was more or less married. She was... As married as she could have been at the time. She had a Destiny Mystique wedding. But speaking of black sheep and rejects, let's talk about toy soldiers. Oh, toy soldiers. I think here I want to talk about joey and his arc because i think that's one of the major pieces of this film and we didn't get into it as much as i would have liked last episode yeah let's do a quick summary of that arc real fast just for our listeners who maybe haven't seen this as recently so joey played by will wheaton we find out that there's some tension between him and his father we don't exactly know the reasons for it and then we eventually find out that It's because his father is a known mob boss and he is reputation laundering his son into this prestigious school. Mm -hmm. And Joey knows it and is really frustrated that he has to live that down in a place where a lot of people know exactly what's going on and also live with the fact that his father is not a respectable man how he gets his money is not respectable and he's getting this presumably pretty good education here paid for by blood money yeah and the way that joey's relationship with a father creates these pivot moments at important 
parts of the film is interesting. So Joey's dad is on the outside attempting to, through criminal back channels, get Joey released. He gets that all set up with Luis Colley's father in prison. When Luis attempts to make good on the deal, Joey realizes... Why me? Because we respect your father. Fuck my father. And fuck you. I'm not going anywhere without my friends. Well, yes, you are. And I have in my notes, says the fuck word, stole a gun, and then died. (laughs) Pretty much. And through the whole film, he's been on this kind of, we should do a violence and just grab all the guns and definitely win this fight kind of mentality. Which, it makes it sort of tragically inevitable that Mm -hmm. this is going to happen. This isn't like an out-of-nowhere sadness. This is a logical progression of the character's setup, which I think, it's it's good writing. It works really well. Joey has this chip on his shoulder, and he was not going to go quietly into that good night. No. And some of it is a little bit heavy-handed. We, we talked about the melodrama of the death scene. It's a little much. You want that scene to be impactful, but the way they attempt to highlight it to make it so feels like it's cheapening it a bit. Mm-hmm. Like... The first time I watched it, I was like, because, oh, you know, it's, it's, you know, death of a character and all that jazz. But this time watching people, like, he gets shot. And my first thought was, what to say, oh, that you only meant well. There's the heavy-handed symbolism of he's wearing a shirt with a peace sign on it. I forgot about that. I, I do think it leads to a really good line that has unfortunately become so much more relatable in the years since this film's released and how does a kid have an accident that gets him shot with a machine gun yeah yeah if only they knew how relevant that line would be 20 years later i think it is definitely playing into how sure it wasn't like someone dropped a gun and it went off or something it was this micro situation but also it was the culture this kid grew up in and his probably really stressful life that led him to that so like it wasn't an accident it was just a decade of someone not correcting something Mm -hmm. much like with bill basically Mm -hmm. just with much worse outcomes and eventually after his son's death joey's father takes retaliation and that sets a clock on the hostage situation because if luis finds out his father is dead he can't get what he wants and so the U.S. government doesn't have any leverage anymore, and Louise can just blow everyone up. Yep. Which is a really good way to ask your attention externally. Like, this movie does a good job of keeping the plot going while most of the characters are just kind of in a holding pattern. Mm-hmm. I don't think this film would have worked nearly as well if it was in a bottle. I think we need those outside scenes of people scrambling to try and fix the situation from outside while we're also getting what it's like on the inside of the situation. Balancing that is not always easy in a film like this. But circling back to Joey's death, do you think he was meant to be in the hangman pose on purpose, or did it just come out that way? I did not notice that. So we have a shot of him after he dies and people crowded around him and they're sad. It sort of hangs on that for a bit while everyone's ushered away, and he's in the very archetypal hangman pose from the Waysmith Tarot. His hand's a little bit further away, but they're not going to be, like, behind his back. But it's, like, the, the one, angle of the foot and all that jazz. Yeah, one yeah. leg fully extended, the other, like, cocked and, like, with the, the foot near the knee. Mm-hmm. And the camera has him, what would be, I guess, like, hangman reversed, which is about impulsive decisions coming from thoughtlessness. 
which does fit him, but I don't know if I'm just stretching and it just happened to work out that way. This doesn't seem like the kind of movie that would just have tarot symbolism in there, but maybe it does. Maybe this is all like riddled with that and I didn't notice it. On one hand, we have the evidence of really heavy-handed thing, like the peace sign he's wearing on a shirt. The Rider Waite tarot is just so ubiquitous and that imagery is so well known that it could be that the director of photography is like, no, I specifically want this pose. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Billy is definitely, well, sorry, Billy from Toys Soldiers, not Bill from Mona Lisa and Smile, is definitely like the archetypal fool. He's going through like the fool's journey and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. The Dean is clearly the Emperor or whatever, possibly the magician. I'm getting too deep into this now. This is, this is a mistake. If you torture the plot enough, you can get a fool's journey about just about every movie. I can get the journey through the major arcana from Rebecca Black's Friday. <laughs> I've done it. The fool's journey, like the monomyth, is just this is how we tell stories in the West. We've been doing it for thousands of years, and that's why all these similarities crop up. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to probably more criticize this film for is it has some weird pacing at points. Uh, I think the first major example is we get the you know initial invasion of the school and there's this weird like 8 to 12 hour time skip on that first day. Mm-hmm. Like in the morning we see Dr. Gould's office has been moved outside and so we're assuming that that her- happened really early in the day before classes started. Or it, like early in the day because it was a weekend. People are going to notice that. Right. So being generous, we'll say it's a weekend, 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. Then the dean goes off campus to deal with the sheriff and Billy shenanigans. Oh, sorry. It's not a weekend because the night before, Will Wheaton is editing Billy's paper. And he says this is due tomorrow. So it's probably a okay. weekday. Yeah. So probably closer to 8 a.m. then. Yeah, at uh, yeah, like at, at the latest for a start time. I mean, I wish high schools had late start times. Teenagers need that sort of late start time, but who knows what the school. So Dean goes off campus, deals with the sheriff. And in that time is when the insurgency happens. The sheriff tries to take care of things. That doesn't go well. And then we skip to the military showing up after it's gone dark. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at like a significant time jump. During which a lot of these characters should be reacting and feeling emotions. Yeah. I will point out, though, that the furniture does wind up back in the headmaster's office before all that goes down, which probably took, you know, a little bit of time. So I can assume it was a few hours later, but still only like 10 or 11 at most. Yeah, like we're estimating like an 8 to 12 hour jump, Mm -hmm. which is significant given the situation, especially the early hours of a situation like this are really important and... I don't think we'd have that big of a delay. Mm-hmm. And we know this takes place in the summer, so it's even later even later sunset time. I'm basing that off of no evidence beyond all the kids walking around in their underwear for no reason. <laughs> just They're just, you know, hey, it's too hot. I better take my clothes off in this Austin situation. I'm the sadness bottom. <sighs> the sadness bottom is going to haunt us forever, isn't it? We can dream. Um, <laughs> uh... So we have that weird pacing, and then after the senior Callie's death in prison and the whole climax of the school begins, I really like the pacing for the swap scene where Billy and Yogurt are crawling through the vents and all that is happening. I think that Micro Heist is paced incredibly well. 
Mm -hmm. And then as things fall apart and things stop going to plan, then the pacing also gets really messy. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is that for a decent chunk of the action scene in the climax, we have nameless goons we don't really care about versus... Um, nameless soldiers that we don't care about? Yeah, like even more nameless soldiers because they're all wearing masks. It's not even like, oh, hey, here's the guy who was in the cafeteria earlier. I'm sure Billy being held at nine point by Callie, but we're reminded of that, and we'll go back to like two or three minutes of like action fighting, then back to Billy Vince's a bit more action fighting. The tension goes away too much for yeah. us to like really be worried about that. Mm -hmm. The last like 20 minutes of this film are just kind of all over the place. Mm hmm. And it's really unfortunate. I honestly think I probably would have enjoyed the film quite a bit more if what they were going for was better achieved. Because I can understand the pacing breaking down, showing how chaotic everything is, but I think there were better ways to get that across to your audience than the way they chose. It's not filmed chaotically enough. Like, it's filmed like a pretty standard Hollywood action sequence. Yeah, if this were done with more modern techniques, we'd get a lot of shaky cam in those scenes. A lot of shaky cam, and I think like a tracking shot, we're following the Dean as he's kind of trying to sneak through this battlefield to get into the office from behind. With like soldiers falling all around him, he accidentally stabs the wrong guy. There's a horse riding through. He's Jon Snow now. <laughs> I mean, I would have loved a wonder of the Dean trying to get through everything to save Billy. That would have been fun. That would have been great. But, um... Wonders aren't really a thing at this point in time, at least not for a film of this budget, so. Yeah. Like, wonders have been around forever, but action wonders are incredibly difficult to do because you either have to have so much prep that you can make sure that filming you're going to get it right on the very first try or have enough of a budget that you're able to redo those stunts until you get it right. Mm -hmm. Or be confident enough in your editing and CGI to, like, shoot several and then put them together, which not easy. Yeah, especially not with the technology in 91. Mm -hmm. But I do really want, like, an old person to... Holy shit. You go first. I'm really too old. Oh, no, you go. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> guns are fire all around him. Sounds great. Uh, I will say I am glad that he did not die because yeah. it's kind of tropey for a, an older black protagonist to die to show you the stakes are real. We kind of already got that with Joey. I'm glad that he lived, but also, I mean, we don't really get any wrap-up after all the action is over, so we don't really see how this has affected them that much. This definitely does not have a good cool-down after the climax. It's like, okay, and tension is gone, and then we just kind of end the film. Mm -hmm. It's not quite as bad as, like, some of the old films that we watched for the Monster Bracket last year, <laughs> but it's not much better. It is not at all dissimilar to the creature from the Black Lagoon, where they shoot the guy and then it's done. Credits! <laughs> Black Lagoon Man is the synopsis of that movie. I will say also during that uh, fight sequence, that comes after the micro heist where they swap out the chips for the remote control plane and the bomb. Mm -hmm. And I think the film doesn't do a good enough job of letting us know that it's unclear whether that actually worked. I think that knowing all the bombs could still go off at any point would add to the tension, whereas I was kind of just like in the mindset of, oh, so they fixed that. It's solved as opposed to, oh, we don't know if this is going to work until the end. Like, I think we could have spent more time like, having characters say, did you get it? I think so. <laughs> People are a little too sure of this plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think part of it is that plan has been being tossed around for so much of the film. We kind of need it to succeed. Mm -hmm. Like we get that scene where they have to hide because someone comes into the office. And if that was reworked, so it was a scramble to finish up before they get in. And it's like, I'm not sure if I did it right. Mm -hmm. I think that would have given us the tension that we needed while also feeling like, yes, they were successful in this plan that they've been working on for a good chunk of the film. 
if the instruction comes when, when Billy's holding both chips that look the same and he's not entirely sure which one he put into which. Or, on the flip side, if Yogurt had been more of a character or had merged with one of his friends and there's an ongoing tension about whether or not that friend is reliable or tr- knows what he's talking about and <laughs> Billy wanted to press him to think he's like, no, I trust my friend. Press. Yes. That could have been a really good like punch in the air moment, but mm-hmm. it would just get Yogurt being, I don't know, small? Yeah, small, nerdy. Name's Yogurt. <laughs> Yogurt's children and being more clothed than the aggregates. Thankfully, he's like 12. He would almost certainly be played by Finn Wolfhard in the remake. God, you're not wrong. I keep thinking that I would kind of like a miniseries of this, and I realize that I'm just talking about this being like an arc on, on Riverdale. Like, this is 100% the kind of thing that would happen on Riverdale. I mean, Riverdale. honestly, there are definitely parts of this movie that feel like Stranger Things has done them better. All right, I think it's about time to move into our end segments. Yeah, so... Firstly, which has the more pronounced name for a school? So we have Wellesley College from Unleash a Smile, and then we have Regis High School from Toy Soldiers. Uh, it's the Regis School, according to the nameplate, which is what I think is more pretentious. It's the Regis School. That's fair, because like if you just go with Regis High School, like that's that's anything. Yeah. But like the Regis School, mm-hmm. you expect people to already know about you on your sign. Mm-hmm. Whereas Wellesley is a, an actual real name of a place, and not that pretentious. It's up there. Like, Wellesley definitely seems like the kind of name you would have for, like, your pretentious British character or whatever, but yeah. it's whatever. Yeah, it's no worse than, like, Welton from Dead Poets Society. Yeah. Which also did not win this. Yeah. It's just a sort of generic name for a school. Mm-hmm. That brings us to our alignment charts. Mm-hmm. So, from last time around, we have Billy versus Emil Hirsch's character for Jock. We have... Uh, yogurt versus Deepak for nerd. We have Veronica probably or Betty from uh, for prep and Beatrice and Giselle for goth. Where do we want to start? Part of me wants to go to prep because it's Betty versus Veronica. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we have Elizabeth, Betty, Warren from Only Lisa Smile, and then Veronica. We think is the name of the snooty blonde from Madeline. You know, like Veronique or whatever, because French. Well, it was either Veronica or Victoria, and we mm. couldn't decide. And I think Veronica is just a better name in <laughs> always. And as someone who has seen Riverdale, obviously Veronica. She doesn't have the serial killer gene. <laughs> I've got to go with Betty. Yeah. Both of them do have somewhat of a redemption arc, but I think overall Betty's is stronger in that regard, and I think she starts off meaner to begin with. Yeah, and she does more to explore the richness and the social expectations of being a prep whereas veronica is more just the snooty girl at school yeah yeah dime a dozen so betty wins and veronica finally goes to jail for her father's criminal enterprises and for running an illegal saloon under a pops soda stand also for setting a guy on fire hitting him with a chair do you want to just have a riverdale podcast i'm sure daniel would be up for you meanwhile uh beatrice versus giselle for most goth Beatrice from Madeline is actually more goth. Like, she definitely has, like, more goth things. But Giselle is more a character. Yes. And that's always a tough one. We had that problem last week with the the rival from Finding Forrester, whose name we cannot find. (laughs) The Avatar of Basketball. I'll probably go and rewatch that at some point this week to see if I can find a name. (laughs) But I don't think that works as well for the goth archetype. No. I think Giselle was kind of the... Eh, we gotta pick someone character yes. for this. Whereas Beatrice was like definitively, oh, oh yeah, you're you're gonna be dressing as a gothic lolita here in a few years. You're not wrong. 
Yeah. Like, you're, she's going to read a lot of like mystery novels and side with the women who poison their husbands. Probably. Secretly an Adam's sister. <laughs> yeah. I think my only hesitancy is I want Giselle to win things. I like her as a character, but yeah, Beatrice can uh, can win most goth. I think Maggie Gyllenhaal is a strong contender for a supporting actress in the Posse's this coming year. Ah, oh, for sure. Billy from Toy Soldiers versus Emil Hirsch from Emperor's Club. Billy is more of a character for one thing. Well, no. I think they're both characters. I think Billy has more depth than Sedgwick. Sedgwick. Oh, <laughs> forgive me. I had a stupid name. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to Amy Sedgwick's listening. <laughs> also, unsubscribe. <laughs> Jock went to Sedgwick for the reason that we didn't have anyone better. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to give it to Billy. Yeah. I mean, he, he becomes like pint-sized Rambo at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. He does a high school AU of Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> Last, we've got Yogurt versus Deepak for Nerd. I definitely have to go with Deepak here. I think Deepak is nerdier. I think Deepak is, manages to be more of a character than Yogurt does. That's true. I would say that Yogurt still, his tech knowledge saves the day, which is the nerd thing. That is the like first level move you get as a nerd. Yeah, but Deepak beat Sedgwick twice at Roman t- trivia. And that is like, the whole conceit of the movie is like preventing Sedgwick from winning that is important. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I'll give it to Deepak. Like, also, I want Deepak to have nice things. <laughs> Same. I have to have better friends. <laughs> I mean, we talked about how we really wish that he was the main character. Listen, I deleted all my <laughs> knowledge about Emperor's Club as quickly as I could because, boy, howdy, I was never going to need that again. <laughs> uh, but apparently I was wrong. So there we have our alignments. We've got Billy for Jock, Betty for Prep, Deepak for Nerd, and Beatrice for Goth. Mm-hmm. I can't believe we had Betty versus Veronica. <laughs> I mean, it could be Victoria, but I, I choose to go with Veronica just because it's funnier. Either way, she wasn't victorious. Anyway, if that pun wasn't so bad to make you unsubscribe, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Yeah. Next episode, we'll be finishing off round two and discussing Sky High. <laughs> And school ties. <laughs> Surprisingly, both de- films are dealing with fascism. You're not wrong. To find out how, tune in next week. Thank you for putting up with our goofiness. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.